Welcome to PR360, a weekly interview podcast dedicated to talking about the important topics within the public relations technology industry, hosted by Brett Deister and in partnership with Global Results Communication. Find out more information at globalresultspr.com. And welcome to a new episode of PR360. And I'm your host, Brett Deister. And this podcast is about talking to the best thought leaders and industry makers in the PR industry. And with me, I have Andy Gilman. He's a former reporter and lawyer, and he has been a leading communication counselor for 35 years. He's counseled J&J on the Tylenol crises. He's also done governments, tech companies, startups, anything you can think of, including nonprofits as well. He has helped with their crisis communication plan and media training. So welcome to the show, Andy. Thanks, Brent. Pleasure to be here. All right. The thing I ask my guests all the time, are you a coffee or tea drinker? Yeah, I'm ready for that one. It's definitely coffee, uh, 90 plus coffee to tea. And if you want to get more special, generally a fresh roast done in a French press. No sugar, no cream, just straight up. Oh, getting all fancy on me, aren't you, with the French press? Yeah, we find it's the best way to get the purest taste you want. So I'm happy to have it as many times a day as I can. You should also try pour over. That's another great way of actually getting the best tasting out of coffee, too. I'll have to wait till we can get back into the stores and buy one of those devices. All right. Yes, I know. We're all waiting in anticipation to actually do our normal stuff again. But tell our listeners a little bit about Comcore. Comcore is a specialty PR firm that started back in 1985. And even before that, I had done media training and advice to Johnson & Johnson during the original Tylenol crisis, which preceded that. And our niche has been helping prepare people for print and broadcast interviews, for presentations that are to management, to the FDA. And then obviously, we work with our clients on good news, but unfortunately, there's bad news. So there's a specialty we've had in crisis communication for many, many years. Mm, yes, I actually, when I was in college for my PR degree, I actually talked about and heard about the Tylenol crisis and how that was a crisis well managed. So did you help with managing that well? Johnson & Johnson gets the credit. They had the leadership, they had the teamwork, and they had the values of a company that could help get them through this. There were many different agencies, including the one I work for, that helped. But there's always a couple of things I point out when people talk about Tylenol and that it was one of the famous case studies to be looked at and learned from. Yes, it really was a great case study, but there's a couple of factors that would change it dramatically today, Brett. That would be one, there was no internet back then. So when this hit, there were three or four national networks around the country, and there weren't many other places to go for information. And then you didn't have people commenting left, right, and center as we would have in either internet or blogs or tweets with it. That was one. The second thing, and this actually may apply to what's happening now with COVID-19, is as the lawyers would like to say, there was no contributory negligence by the company. In most crises, whether it was the Gulf oil spill or what's happened with Boeing and their 737, 
is that they didn't want to have the accident. They didn't want to have the spill. But something the company, the organization did, contributed to these events. In J&J's case, they were minding their own business and somebody poisoned their product. In the case now of COVID-19, we're all the victims of this invisible scourge. But that's two of the differences that really differentiate what happened with J&J to, unfortunately, what has happened in so many other crises to this day. Hmm. Well, thank you for uh, sharing more about what was going on behind the scenes for that type of crisis. But my next question is, what are the biggest pain points for PR pros in 2020? Oh, there's a number of pain points. There is the profession we have, which usually requires us to be in an office, at a client, at an event, and we can't do that. We're like everybody else. But I think, again, people go into this business because they want to act with other people. So that's one of the pain points. Then get to what we do for a living. You can't have your events unless you can create a virtual one that is harder to do. You have businesses. So we're now in an era where all non-essential businesses are closed. Well, that kind of means that non-essential promotions and other activities that PR is most associated with aren't going to happen. So we've lost our very often the things that we do every day, we've lost our control and we can't control them from coming back. So in terms of pain points, there are unfortunately a lot of them. Uh, yes, the whole face-to-face thing. That was the new thing for a while for PR and now it's not the new thing anymore, unfortunately. Unfortunately, the technology has evolved. There's never a good time, but if there was a good time for a crisis like this, it's that most of the world at least the developed world, is connected. So whether it's our WebEx or Zoom or mobile phones or internet use, we're able to manage a little bit more. And also, fortunately, authorities have more ability to track, not perfectly, because of the technology we have. So the technology tools are in place that are a poor substitute, but they are a substitute. Mm-hmm. And have you seen the pivoting of messaging for selling products to selling more of hope or community? Have you kind of seen that turnaround start to happen and that we used to be like, oh, get our products. Now it's like, oh, well, we care about you guys in some way. You're absolutely right, Brad, that you have to pivot in the way you market, sell, connect. And most of the advice that we give, I've heard others give on different webinars that I've been listening to, is that you're First of all, it's a sincere and right thing to do. First, make sure people are safe. Make sure they're following the CDC and other guidelines. Second, make sure you are supporting those who are on the front line. Those happen to be the medical workers, the healthcare workers. Those happen to be the grocery store workers. They may have people working at the gas station. We're not the ones in the remote offices that are usually putting our lives at risk unless we have family members who have unfortunately gotten sick. And I get lots of emails that are really sort of direct marketing where it's as if people haven't paid attention. If you realize what's going on and if you can't at least show the care and concern for what's going on, I'm not going to listen to the rest of your message. And going back to what we talked about with Johnson & Johnson on Tylenol, one of the other things that Johnson & Johnson is credited with, and it started at the top of their CEO, James Burke, was that Jim Burke was able to show care and concern 
for those that had been impacted by the poisonings. Obviously, there were people who lost their lives. There were family members. And in contrast, about that same time was the infamous Bhopal poisonings in India. And one of the things that the company that was involved in it, Union Carbide, got criticized for was the fact they didn't show appropriate care and concern. If you've ever seen pictures of that tragedy, it's really, really a sad thing. So let's come back to your question of you have to connect with our environment before I'm going to listen to your other messages. Hmm. And do you think a lot of the PR pros are getting reacquainted with their crisis plan? They kind of like put it on the back burner and they're like, oh, I got to do this. Now, that's an interesting question, whether we're getting reacquainted with our crisis. Not everybody in PR is involved in crisis. So you can't all of a sudden become an expert. Now, if you want to create a crisis plan, it's pretty easy. There are lots of templates that you could download off the internet and you get a checklist of what to do. But coming to what we have done, if you have been in the crisis field, we have a new category that I don't think most people had put in. Maybe the WHO, World Health Organization, had. But we didn't have pandemic as one of the big categories to think about. Maybe we had a broad category for natural disasters that you had in. But pandemic of this scale is different than the tsunami that might have hit Thailand or Japan or the hurricane that hit the Bahamas or Mexico. Those tend to be more isolated events. They are intense, but they're not of the scale of this. So we're adding a new category. Other categories that we tend to think about in the crisis plan, well, again, a Me Too type of category wasn't there a few years ago. There were employee issues as a broad category. Hacking or cyber crimes is probably the number one under pandemic for this year. Again, five or six years ago, that wasn't as big a category as it is now. There are operational issues that happen. So if an airline's res system, reservation system goes down, that those are kinds of buckets of categories. And I think for the PR world, you have all those individual categories that you create a crisis plan for. And then there's kind of an overlay, if you will, of what we call reputation. And usually it's one or two of these different kind of crises that impact a brand, an organization, or a company's overall reputation. And you have to think about both what are we doing to fix mechanically what may have occurred, but how are we managing the reputation? Mm. Yeah, I mean, anybody didn't really foresee that pandemic would be part of your crisis plan, but then here we are, and we're like, oh, maybe we should put that on the list now. Yeah, it's on the list. And it's also, there are people who do crisis planning that probably had a pandemic in their checklist of what they needed to deal with. Those tend to be public safety people, EMT people, supply chain people. They've all thought about it. Whether it had laddered up to the PR corporate community, I'm not sure, but it is part of people in supply chain to make sure that they have that going. And it gets to the other point of when you have that plan, a crisis plan that you don't test or drill upon is like giving the firemen a book, say, read this, and now you know how to fight a fire. So once you have the plan, this is a going forward thing, is you need to test it in some way or another to find out everything from who are the right people on the team, what are the gaps in our operational handling of a drill 
so that we can be better when the real one happens. So it, it comes back to, it's not a bad time now, assuming you've stabilized your organization for the time being, to start thinking about, okay, what are the next things that could happen? How do we begin planning and testing that? Mm -hmm. And what are some tips for PR pros? Maybe it's not during a terrible time of writing a crisis plan. Maybe they're just going, oh, look, my company doesn't have one. How do I start writing something like this? It's pretty easy to start a, a plan. Go to the internet, look up crisis templates, and you can find some basic material to start with. One of my favorite books is written by Atul Gawande, and this relates to crisis. And the book is called Checklist Manifesto. Dr. Gawande is still a practicing surgeon in Boston, and he also writes about healthcare issues. And what he showed in this book, Checklist Manifesto, was that when doctors in the operating room use more checklists, they find they have fewer complications, fewer readmissions, fewer fatalities. So a good crisis plan starts with the checklist. Now, you have to take that template and customize it for your organization, your people, your products, your customers or clients or people you serve. An example I would give you many years ago, we were writing a, a crisis plan for a cosmetics company. And the standard checklist would be the same. The supply chain, what happens if somebody ingests one of the cosmetics? What happens if there's an animal testing issue? What happens with ingredients? What happens if a competitor does X or Y to you? But one of the differences between two companies would be one of the companies we looked at is quote unquote Midwestern. CEO is not very visible. Another company is based in New York City with a very visible CEO. So you had to write very specific things for if somebody's in the public eye versus 80% of the rest of the plan. And it's in those details and the checklist levels where your plan can really become useful and really useful in the event of a crisis. Mm -hmm. And what could PR pros, let's say they didn't have a crisis plan, do for a company that is going through a crisis right now? Is there some type of like quick way of doing some type of crisis strategy around it in a really time crunch? I know it's not the best idea, but is there some way of doing that? You know, intuitively, we, if you have some experience and you've been in enough situations, you've been in around crises, whether you've actually called them that. But the first two or three things you want to do is pull a team together. And these days, it's going to be virtually. You won't be in the physical war room. Secondly, start figuring out what do we know? What can we confirm? Who else do we need on our team, whether it's internal or external third-party experts, authorities, law enforcement, depending on the kind of crisis? Then we have to figure out who do we need to communicate with and when. Sometimes when you start a crisis, there isn't much to communicate. You're aware of it. It's not public yet. But the quick things are pull a team together, figure out who else needs to be on the team, Get your holding statements ready to go if you need to, and then figure out when you need to act and where. Uh, the modern crisis plan also has to be able to be set up in a way that you can communicate in multi-channel. By that, I mean, if you think about a big pizza with lots of slices on it, well, you might need to communicate from your website. You might need to tweet. 
You might need to do a news interview. You might need to do a YouTube video. There's so many different channels to reach your specific stakeholders that that needs to be uh, used pretty quickly. Where and how do I communicate? Mm -hmm. And moving on more to the content about crisis plans, do you think having digital templates for all the social media platforms is a good idea for a crisis plan for 2020 or even moving farther? Yes, templates are a good starting point. Again, when a crisis hits, and almost always you're going to be late, the news hits on Twitter, the news hits on Facebook or some version of social media. And kind of the irony of it, when I first started out as a reporter, the way you knew something was going on, you listened to the police radio or the fire department scanner. Now you watch Twitter or Facebook to see what else is going on. So you're already late to what people are saying. The template, which says at blank time, this occurred to our company, we are investigating, here's what we know, you have fewer words to lend. And the other point is because of the society we live in, a crisis invariably produces aftershocks. One of those aftershocks can be litigation or regulatory investigation. And it's best if your templates are pre-approved by legal so that they're not worried about what you are saying in the boilerplate part of it. And then you can quickly get approvals on the facts and figures you need to put in. So templates are a great way to start. Again, you need responsible people who are filling it in and then have somebody check before it goes out. Mm -hmm. And should you have like multiple templates for the same crisis or just one specific one? So you can just use that specific one because people like different content. So you need templates for the type of crisis. So if, for example, your website goes down or you've been hacked, that's a different kind of a template to use than perhaps if there was a fire at your facility or there was an ethical issue that you had. I mean, it's still uh, fairly basic of at this such and such time on this is this date, this occurred. But the substance of it will vary based upon the kind of incident, emergency, crisis you are having. And moving on to other types of medium and platforms, do you think podcasting and live streaming will be more part of the content mix in crisis communication or even crisis plans? Definitely live streaming or the ability to be your own broadcaster is important, particularly if you have an audience that follows you. Podcasting may not be that helpful in the crisis itself, but let me come back to other things that people can do. Because we have the ability to communicate in different channels, we're not solely relying upon the news media to give our response in a crisis situation. I'll give you an example. A few years ago, the New York Times did an investigative piece on what it had was looking at into Walmart's uh, real estate practices in Mexico. And uh, typically what happens in these kinds of investigations is the reporters are doing all that work. Then they call the company at pretty much the 11th hour and say, would you like to comment? And often you get one or two answers in a longer article. And that occurred on that day. Well, that afternoon, Walmart put up a video on YouTube with the head of corporate communications 
basically spending three or four minutes explaining the company's point of view, much longer than the article was going to allow for comments from the company. Why do they do that? One, they've got many, many audiences, stakeholders that they need to communicate with. They have employees, they have shareholders, they have vendors, they have legislators, they have customers. And what they were able to do is put the Walmart point of view out there. Now, you could do that in a newspaper ad, but of course, there aren't a lot of newspapers out these days. You could do it in a Facebook posting, or uh, you could put it on your Pinterest page. So there's many more channels to communicate now that you have to think through. Podcasting could be one, but I probably think some of these other channels would be my first choice. Yeah. I think it's just seeing a lot of times, especially now, just live streaming becoming more of an important part of communicating to customers than it has even last year. I haven't seen as many. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think, again, it, live streaming, the ability to get out in some ways a longer form communication. On the other hand, let's also remember, while we have a little bit more latitude in today's world of COVID-19, if network and cable reporters and anchors are broadcasting from their living rooms and basements, the production qualities don't have to be absolutely perfect. But again, long form does still need to have some good production values in it. And how has 2020 brought crisis communication to the forefront? It seems like now a lot of businesses and PR pros are kind of looking at this at a more, we probably need to do this more often, or at least update our crisis plan if we need to. Is that true or not? I do think that it's obviously made us aware of what we hadn't prepared for. I don't know when this is all over or as we gradually get back to whatever the new normal is, whether people will forget it and want to get so back to normal, they won't go back and really look at what's the planning that's required. I think our society is great at reacting. We're not always great for planning. But I think one of the things that may also come out of it is a new appreciation for the job that any and all of us do. That's maybe not the crisis part of it, but it's the offshoot of going through this all together. Uh, I think we're going to get a better sense of who are good leaders and what it takes to be a good leader in, in this time. You know, as I've been looking at both writings and postings, some podcasts, some tweets, some videos, you see somebody like Arnie Sorensen the CEO of Marriott, who's done a great job of being emotive in ways that kind of cut through the two-dimensional world that we see things on. So we'll find other leaders. And the other point is that we have to understand in the world of crisis communication, we're going to make mistakes. No matter how well we think we're responding, we're going to make a mistake. And then it's how you adjust and you can go forward. You know, at Comcore, we've kind of developed this phrase we call the four F's of crisis communication. You have to be fast. You have to be quickly out of the gate, but you're usually late after something has happened. You have to then communicate frequently. That's the second F. And it's not a set every hour, but stay in front of the different stakeholders' audience you have. You have to be factual. And I think one of the things we're learning out of COVID is that relying more and more on the scientists trying to get the best facts and accurate data. Then you have to be flexible. You need to make adjustments based upon your plan, again, calling the crisis team back together so that you can make adjustments and keep fine-tuning. Do you think 
media training will actually now include live streaming because it's now part of being in front of a media. It's just a different type of media. Media training and TV interviews will probably not be the same. Rather than run down to the studio, almost any home can be a good studio to do an interview. On the other hand, it does require some different technical skills or technical uh, equipment in place. And, and, and it could be as mundane as how do you light the face of the person so that they come across looking well. It's how to look into that little dot in your laptop so that it appears like you're looking at the camera. And, but it, it comes back to the fact that training and preparation is absolutely critical to do well in any interview. Also, because we're in a political environment, almost any answer that anybody in the public eye is making during this time can be misconstrued. So you both need to prepare and train for the messages, sound bites that you want to deliver. But you have to think through in advance, what are those questions, those gotchas, or paying the blame kind of questions that we watch every night that you may or may not want to answer. And some of the reporters are pretty clever in the way they're trying to pin this down because they're all trying to figure out who is at fault, who knew what when. And you may not be the person that wants to answer that question. And if you don't train properly, you could inadvertently get caught up in one of these types of answers. And what are some common mistakes that people make when talking to the media? The two most common mistakes that people make in answering reporters now, one is an age-old one, which is they repeat the negative in the question when they are thinking about where they want to go in the answer. And that's deadly because sometimes, not always, but sometimes their negative response, which is the repetition of the essence of the question, becomes the pull quote. And whatever they pivot or bridge to, the media training terms of where you want to end up on a tough question, kind of gets lost. And there's a reason why people do this. It's called by psychologists, it's called concretization. It's, we have these big fancy vocabularies. And when we are under pressure, which a media interview has, we will often repeat the last words we've heard. And if you're in a managerial role, it's called reflective listening. We're taught to tell the person that we're meeting with in our office that we want heard them before we give our side of whatever that issue is. So that kind of repetition works in other settings. It doesn't work in the media. So that's probably the biggest single mistake. When you see a bad quote in an article, most people would say, I, I didn't say that. Well, yes, you did while you were thinking out loud. Now, there are techniques to avoid that. They're hard to do, but it requires practice. Is You can pause for a split second, even on live TV or radio. You need some filler words as opposed to repeating the negative. They could be as simple as actually that remind yourself to pivot, or it could be, that's a speculative question. That hasn't been the data we've seen. That's not what our customer has told us. There are enough phrases that you can use that are better than repeating the negative. So don't be negative is what I'm hearing. Don't repeat the negative. You can discuss negative issues unless if you repeat the negative, you're going to own the question. That's really what we often advise, but it's a hard thing to do. And again, that's where training comes in. 
in a practice session, you can hear it, you can then correct it for the real world. And that's why people do this. You know, you mentioned earlier that I'm a lawyer by training. You would never send a client into a deposition or on a witness stand in a trial unless you would work through what you thought the questions were going to be and where you wanted to go on the answers. And then lawyers also have the advantage with their witnesses. Occasionally they can object to a question, which is often a signal to the witness, hey, hold on a second. You're about to walk out in some quicksand. In a media interview, you usually don't have anybody in front of you. You have to have your own skills and defense. I don't think reporters ask questions with the words in them. And there is a uh, Stephen Colbert, no, I think it was John Oliver bit where they went after 60 minutes saying that very often people repeat the negative. I don't think that reporters ask questions hoping that the person repeats the negative. Reporters are trained to be skeptical. That's part of their job. And so good preparation says, be mindful of it. Take a second, listen to the question, figure out where you want to go on that. Those are actually some pretty good tips. But do you think that this is the best time for nonprofits, pharma companies, tech companies, government officials to step up their PR presence? Because it seems like maybe people don't know what to do or maybe that their message is not getting across as much. What do you think? Is this the best time for them right now, these sectors? No, I don't think it's the best time to enhance the brand from a marketing sales point of view. It is a great time to connect yourself with the greater good. However, as you watch any of the cable channels at night, almost every advertiser now has an ad connecting with the good. So it, it, it gets a little bit tiresome, maybe the, the wrong word, but it, you're aware that everybody's trying to do that. But it's kind of like a handshake or it's like care and concern if, in fact, your product or your service hurts somebody. You have to do it. But you might then be able to pivot to what you're selling. I think the car company ad where they're talking about will either delay your payments uh, we'll make sure that uh, we're taking care of you. Those are appropriate, but you don't want to pivot to any kind of a hard sell at this point. The only ones could be food banks. That's a pretty hard sell. Those are the ones that should be doing it. Anyone that's out there helping in a volunteer way can do it. Everybody else, tread carefully. Yeah, I completely agree. It's, it, and I've seen those commercials, actually, and I'm like, all right, it's a nice little positive ad for those, but I agree with you on that. But fun question for you. Is there any odd ways that you stop yourself from doing verbal crutches? These are, if people don't know, these are the ums, the uhs, the you knows. Do you have any tips for them? Well, I remember how I cured myself of ums and errs, but I don't recommend it to most people. It was my early days as a reporter. I was reporting live in New York City during the middle of a transit strike, I think I was on the 7 a.m. broadcast. I thought I did a good job. I checked with my editor in Washington and said, how'd that go? He said, you had the facts right of all the cars coming off the West Side Highway, turning onto Broadway. However, you had a lot of ums and errs in that broadcast. And if you don't cure this by 8 o'clock, this may be the last live broadcast you do. So survival forced me to get rid of the ums and errs. But for most people, I would recommend a couple of things. One, work on your eye contact. 
ums and errs in front of a group of people tends to be what we call a verbal pause. And it is harder to do that when you're making good eye contact with people. Another way is if you're aware of it, tape yourself when you're on a typical phone call or in a meeting, just for yourself, run your smartphone, listen to it after, you'll hear them, and they will begin to hopefully melt away over time. A third way to deal with the ums and errs is to mentally think of an X or a big dot at the end of every sentence. And that will help you think that's a full thought. And a split-second pause, keep in mind in oral communication, we don't have periods, paragraphs, semicolons. Pausing is a really good friend. One final thing is, if you have a trusted colleague, ask them to listen for you and either give you a high sign and point it out to you. But you're better off than doing all those things to try and get rid of them. And again, you as a host of a podcast know they're time-consuming to edit out. We're not particularly articulate when we have the extra ums and ers in there. So those are a few ideas. Yes. And listening to yourself in a podcast can pretty much cure yourself of that too. That's true. <laughs> true. All right. Any final thoughts for our listeners? This is a challenging time for all of us. And yes, crisis communications is now in the forefront, but it really starts with as we are working remotely, take the extra time to ask people how they're doing. Do it at various different times of the day. I recently spoke to a leadership group and talked about leaders should be doing random acts of leadership. And that could be anything from calling a second, third level employee to check in, taking the time to see how people are doing, figure out a way to volunteer good services or time to an organization. Those are my thoughts about crisis. Sure, it's all about business when we get back to it. But hopefully we come out of this with a, a better appreciation of our society, what works well, and then business will follow. Mm. All right. Thank you, Andy, for joining us on PR360. We really appreciate all your insight into Crisis Common Media training. You're welcome, Brett. Pleasure to be here. All right. And thank you guys for tuning in to PR360. And if you could, please consider subscribing to PR360 on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. And join us next week as we talk to another great thought leader and industry maker in the PR industry. All right, guys, stay safe and have a good week. See you next week. Later.